You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end of life care. And now, here is your host, Saul. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Abema. And today I, ha- I really have a special guest, a guest whose work I've followed for years and I respect. In my eyes, she's a legend. And this is Wendy Courage. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I know you've written a lot on chaplaincy. How did that journey begin for you? So I was an undergraduate at Swarthmore College, and I was a religion major, but I was curious about how people live religion in their day-to-day lives. I had grown up in a United Methodist Church and spent a lot of time watching some people listen to the sermons and some people make their grocery lists during the sermons, <laughs> and I wanted to understand more about that lived experience. So long story short, I ended up in a PhD program and writing my dissertation about the movement of Theravada Buddhism from Southeast Asia to the United States, which led me to spend quite a bit of time in Wat Mongkul Tempo Ni, which is a Thai Buddhist temple just north of Philadelphia and a meditation center here in Boston. And the head of the temple was ill during my time at the temple during my research. And I spent a bit of time with him at the hospital. And I wondered when I was in the hospital with him, if there was a chaplain, I really didn't know much about chaplains. The idea just came into my head and he was a Thai Buddhist monk wearing a bright orange robe, lying in a hospital bed. And I thought most of us when we're lying in hospital beds, aren't quote, wearing our religion. So obviously, and I wondered how hospitals responded and cared for people. So that led me to spend some time doing research for a book called paging God, which is about religion and spirituality and healthcare. And that led me to think about lots of other chaplains. So I would say it was both an intellectual and a personal interest that was spurred by people I met and stories I heard from them and places they led me along the way. I found out a lot about the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab during the pandemic. And it was such, it's like a God sent <laughs> a space where chaplains can come and there's a bunch of resources. What was the motivation behind that? I was interviewing the leaders of chaplaincy organizations nationally around 2015, 2016, and I was hearing the same things from them. They were struggling with some of the same challenges and problems. They were trying to support their chaplains in some of the same ways, but they were all working in different settings and sectors, and none of them knew each other. And I'm impatient, and I wanted to help. (laughs) And so the idea was really that Chaplains can do their work better together than apart, and that we all have things to learn from one another. And so the, you know, we have a a friend, a colleague who says we were building a mall. You know, we were trying to to pitch a big tent or build a big mall and invite everybody in, you know, the chaplains, the educators, the social scientists, to see if together we can help chaplains do their best work, which is for me really at the end of the day about trying to alleviate suffering. So the impetus was these conversations with national leaders in airports and ports and veterans administration and healthcare. The kind of spark for me, the piece was we do things better together than apart and why not share and collaborate and see if we can make a difference in the work on the day to day. I find the lab to be an amazing ecosystem because I've been in hospice for over 17 years. So that is my total focus. I'm 100% committed to hospice, but to have that ecosystem where you can go there and listen to all these voices 
of chaplains practicing in different contexts, that is really powerful. And I'm glad you mentioned hospice because we have found that there are really only two things that all chaplains do, no matter whether they work on container ships or in hospice or in higher education. One is that they all work around end-of-life issues, and sometimes they're invited to do so, obviously, in hospice. Other times, it's just what ends up on their lap. So I feel like I mean, we know empirically that all chaplains do work there, and I think they can share skills and, and guidance and support for one another, maybe with hospice chaplains at the lead. <laughs> the other is that um, all chaplains, in some ways, help people remember their bigger orientation points, to their peripheral vision, to sort of pick up their heads in difficult situations and try to take in the bigger picture. And again, we see that everywhere. And so, you know, in different webinars and different conversations, I think those are the two things that we think potentially unify all chaplains. Mm. I would also add that I'm increasingly convinced as American religious demography changes and as the traditional delivery mechanism for religion and spirituality, which has been the congregation, declines, mm-hmm. chaplains are poised and are taking the lead because they have always worked with people who they meet outside of congregations, who are different from them, who are diverse, who are or are not religious, and however that word is understood. And I think this is the moment for chaplains to step more into that lead. And again, yeah. we do it better together than apart. Yeah. I find that though, uh, if you're working for a church, there's a sense of financial compensation. If you work for a hospice or a hospital, I just worry about the other branches of chaplaincy and how, uh, because money, you know, you have to earn a living. Right. Yeah. So what's, what kind of challenges have you found around that? Are there organizations willing to sponsor or? Yeah, so I think this is probably the biggest challenge for chaplaincy and spiritual care today, which is the business model. And, you know, the traditional business model for religion and spirituality in the United States is the congregation. People, you know, make donations and their clergy are paid and some of those clergy are full-time and part-time and whatever. I think as congregations close, which they're doing across the country, the challenge for all of us and for some of our more financially minded and entrepreneurial friends (laughs) is to think about how to support and redirect resources from that old congregational model Mm -hmm. to these new models in chaplaincy. So in general, there are full-time chaplaincy positions and chaplains are required in the military. Yeah federal prisons, and the Veterans Administration. So there are dollars there. Most hospices, not all, have chaplains. Most healthcare organizations have chaplains. Um, Many institutions of higher education have them. There are chaplains in lots of other settings and sectors, but they tend to be more part-time or more limited. And one of our big worries is how to make the case for the work of spiritual care in a way that encourages organizations and companies to put their money into supporting chaplains and to seeing that the good they do makes a difference for outcomes and things that they're concerned about. I think the most recent important conversation to have about this is related to the Surgeon General's report on loneliness, which names a national loneliness epidemic. I think he's absolutely right. And I think that chaplains and spiritual care providers are a key piece of that. And I worry that Um, You know, religion is mentioned in that report as part of the cause of the epidemic, Mm -hmm. some of the closing of local congregations, but there is not yet a vision for how religious leaders, including spiritual care providers, are part of the solution. And I think when we talk about solutions and we talk about current problems, 
we can sometimes have the money follow. And that's actually what the lab is all about, trying to spark that practical innovation. But I really am worried about the business model. I've been totally out of touch with congregational ministry. So from hearing you, it looks like there's a trend where a lot of churches are closing down. So are they willing to support the Innovation Lab to help chaplains in this different context to meet the growing need for chaplains? If any of them are listening, please call us. Um, You know, theological schools are closing too, um, and seminaries. And I've called quite a few seminaries when they're closing to see if they're interested in considering partnering with us. Because I think much of what not just the lab, but chaplains are doing is the legacy of this rich history of religious leadership across traditions. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with the content. It's just that we live in a time where people want different delivery systems, right? They're listening to your podcast. They watch Netflix by subscription. Amazon, Amazon.com drops things at their door. Delivery systems always change. And I think the question for this moment is how is the delivery system for spiritual and religious content changing? And how do we support that change such that um, you know, we're meeting the needs of people on the ground. So we we partner with anyone and everyone and are trying to figure out how to be a part of that change. That leads us to your book, Spiritual Care, The Everyday Work of Chaplains. What was the motivation behind that book? I wanted to understand how chaplains that work in different settings and sectors do or do not work together. And all of the research and scholarship, most of the conversation would focus just in healthcare or just in the military or just in higher education. And I thought, well, what happens if instead of thinking about a setting, we think about a place? Oh. And I live in Boston. When my when I started this research, my children were small and I wasn't able to travel for research. And so I thought, well, let's just look in Boston. Let's see if I can find chaplains everywhere they are and let me learn from them. And so it was an effort to think about spiritual care as part of a religious ecology of a place rather than other or different from the congregations and the denominations and the diocese. It was really to to ask a question about how it's been integrated, not just in Boston's current life, but in its past. And Boston is one case study. I'm really clear in the book that, you know, no single city represents any other city. So it's just a starting point. But it's a way to try to encourage us to think more broadly about the history of chaplaincy. And I can say a bit about some of the surprising things I found in Boston's history, if that's of interest, but also about its future. And, you know, the history of spiritual care or of the profession of chaplaincy in the United States hasn't been written in a way that looks across sectors. So I'm not a historian. I do the best I can in one chapter. And a lot of library archivists helped me. But I think we need to reclaim that history and tell that story as part of motivating and visioning looking forward. I found chaplains in the Boston Fire Department starting in 1906. You know, Boston City Hospital um, had chaplains from the earliest time periods. There are so many places that chaplains have been that we don't even know, and the records are not kept. And so I think first it's to acknowledge that this is not a new profession It's not a profession that is in any way less than that of congregational clergy. It's also been a diverse profession, not as diverse as any of us would like, but we have a number of resources on our website about the history of African-American chaplaincy that we put together with uh, Barbara Savage, who's a historian at the University of Pennsylvania, seeing how the first African-American chaplains were in the military, specifically in the army. It's just to recognize both that chaplaincy has a history, that it has a diverse history, that we need to see what that is. And the biggest thing that I took from the history and the way, the reasons we don't know it is that it's 
it's hidden because so much of what chaplains do is hidden and they do their work quietly around the edges. And I'm thinking of, I was reading the reports of some of the early Protestant chaplains in hospitals, and they were writing about how they were working with chaplains and other religious traditions, and they would not have otherwise been in contact with them. And they were serving a whole range of patients Mm -hmm. who otherwise, again, would not have had anyone served. So I think the quietness of the history reminds us that it needn't be the quietness of the future, even if the work itself is and will likely remain quiet, um, but that it's part of of a bigger story. And I think writing that story and including all of the voices and then naming the voices that are missing can motivate us to see ourselves as part of a trajectory. And I like that it exposes the hidden work of spiritual care. And sometimes I wonder, because really chaplains do a lot of work. I don't know whether it's the uncomfortable nature of writing (laughs) that keeps a lot of the work of chaplaincy hidden uh, what have you found? You know, I don't want to suspect you. You're, you're the scholar. <laughs> what have you found? Is it because the chaplains don't like to do research, or don't feel well equipped, or don't want to talk about what they do based on spiritual values? Or what have you found? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one is that historically, much of what religious leaders do with their constituents is confidential. And so it comes from a place where the content is itself sensitive, often confidential, and just not something one would typically share. I think that's one piece. The second piece is that religious leaders are trained to be religious leaders, not to necessarily be writers or researchers. And frankly, there's no reason they need to do that if they collaborate. So I think, you know, we don't ask most local clergy, you know, why they're not publishing their sermons. So in the same sense, you know, I I don't, why would we ask chaplains that? Well, we're thinking about it in a different way, but it's not part of the way that chaplains have been trained. And institutionally, the chaplains are in between institutions. And the subtitle of my book originally, or in my own head still, has the term in between places in it, because they're neither of the hospital nor completely of their religious tradition, right? They're at these institutional interstices where there isn't necessarily anybody looking. And most chaplains that I meet care deeply for the people that they support, and that's where their focus is. And why would they go around touting that? That's uncomfortable for many of us. So um, I think there's individual training and institutional reasons for the quietness and again, it's all about partnership. So the chaplains can do their work and those of us with other skills can try to amplify that. With that, we'll take a little break again. Our guest is Wendy Couch. Her book is Spiritual Care, the Everyday Work of Chaplains. We'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Berman. We continue our conversation with Wendy Couch. Chaplaincy is broad. There are different fields. But do you find uh, a sense of consistency, a thread that just goes through every uh, sphere of chaplaincy, whether it's hospice, hospital, working at the airport, is there, have you found any consistent thread? The only two consistent threads that we have found are the two that I mentioned about um, working around death and end of life issues and helping people with peripheral vision. 
there really are not other consistent threads in the training or in the preparation. And I think this is one of the challenges, excuse me, for the profession. We've been working on a big project to try to understand both the need or demand for chaplains across the United States and the supply, how chaplains are trained. And we have on our website a gap analysis. It names the sort of six gaps, the things that we really need educators and clinical trainers and others to think about when they're preparing chaplains. And the most humbling part of that research was a finding. We did a national survey with Gallup in March of 2022, and we were trying to find out what fraction of Americans have had contact with a chaplain. And the answer is 18%. If you define a chaplain as a religious professional that you meet outside of a congregation, like in the military, healthcare, higher education, other settings. Despite that, when we asked people that question with that definition, 44% of Americans told us they had had contact with a chaplain. Hmm. We were confused. So we thought, hmm. And then the next question was, where did that contact happen? The largest fraction of people told us they met a chaplain at church. So we thought, hmm, that's interesting. Certainly chaplains go to church. Maybe they know people in their congregations. We interviewed 50 people who said they had contact with a chaplain to hear more. And what we learned in those interviews is that in general, none of the people who met a chaplain at church met what we would call a chaplain by the definition we used. So on a good day, I would say Americans have a very expansive sense of what chaplains are. On a bad day, I would say Americans have no idea what chaplains are. And so that is perhaps beside the business model, the um, other fundamental question for the profession to wrestle with and grapple with. What we learned in the interviews is that in general, most care recipients hear chaplain and they think capital R religion. They think religious institution, they often think Christian. And they see that as what chaplains do more than anything else. Most of the chaplains that I have interviewed in my research work across faith traditions, see themselves serving everyone. Uh, The public doesn't know that. And when the public hears the term, they don't think about it that way. And so there's a public relations and communication challenge slash opportunity here um, where we are thinking actively about, you know, first is chaplain the right word or do we need a different word? Changing language is hard. I'm not advocating it, but it's a question. And second, what's the value proposition? What's the marketing message? You know, we are increasingly thinking that it might be something as simple as chaplains listen because Mm -hmm. we all need to be listened to. We don't know what it is. I'm just sort of brainstorming here, but um, that's that's a real challenge. Yeah, right. I mean, you're pointing something that I've really never thought much about that, you know, the potential that maybe language could be a barrier to access, <laughs> which is quite interesting. But then it's hard to rebrand something like, you know, chaplaincy. And, um, we can see pretty clearly that there are two groups of constituents. There are a set of people for whom the word chaplain is familiar. It opens the door. It's comfortable. Mm-hmm. Those tend to be people who are religiously affiliated who have a military connection or perhaps have been or um, been connected to federal prisons, perhaps the VA. The people for whom the word chaplain is not resonant, and in many cases it actually closes the door, are for people who are not affiliated religiously, are not Christian, have had a bad experience with religion. Um, The word, it not only isn't an entry point, it's actually a closing of the door. And Mm. 
that is the challenge. And it may be that we need two different ways to describe things. I mean, it's not that mm. we need everybody to agree because we all know that the country is very diverse and includes very many differences. Yeah. Um, it is a challenge. It is really. I see it even with the hospice chaplains because a new patient may be admitted to hospice and they tell the admission nurse, no chaplain. But if they by chance encounter the chaplain and they realize that the the meaning-making process is not really caged down by religion, then they, then all of a sudden they are open to the chaplain to come in as a meaning-maker. <laughs> but initially they hear, should the chaplain come? No. Right. And some healthcare institutions have changed the question. So some will say something along the lines of, you know, our spiritual care providers like to check in on any on all of our patients. Um, do you have any objection to that? So different ways of softening and changing the question creates different kinds of openings. Um, and again, it depends where you live and who your constituents are. But um, it is it is an interesting challenge. A lot of marketing work that chaplains have to do. <laughs> With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sole Bem, and we continue our conversation with Wendy Kaj. Um In Chapter 6, you speak about brokering death, chaplains as midwives and escorts. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, so one of the things that I heard in my interviews with chaplains in Boston is the work that they do around death, both for individuals and for institutions, both in situations where death is expected and where death is sudden. And of course, what they do varies by all of those things, but it is a central part of all of the chaplains' um, work with whom I spoke. So a midwife is someone who helps bring life into being. And I think at the end of life, the midwives are the hospice chaplains and their colleagues who help people die and help not just the individual, but their families and their communities. And typically not, you know, at the moment of death, but over the period, because in the same way that pregnancies typically last nine months and there's a process, so too is it the case for many, not all people at the end of life. And so, you know, there's this group of people calling themselves death doulas who are yeah. sort of naming being a midwife at death in a different way. Yeah. But, you know, particularly in hospice and palliative care, we see chaplains able, ideally, you know, sadly, people often don't come in early enough to kind of be able to fully benefit. But to be able to get to know people and work with them and their families over a period of time near the end of their lives and be that support person, that resource, mm -hmm. someone who's seen this before. You know, when I teach, yeah. I teach a course here at Brandeis University about the sociology of birth and death. Yeah. And I ask the students on the first day how many of them have been present with someone very close to the end of their lives. It's typically very few. And then we talk about how unusual that is and how interesting, because for many of us who came from agricultural backgrounds, that was common. And if it wasn't a person they were with, it was an animal or a pet or something else. And so we talk about how 
because death is so much in our contemporary culture out of view, we're not comfortable with it. We don't know enough. We need a midwife who's been there before to hold our hands, whether we are the person dying or their family. So I think the midwifery concept denotes the transition for all involved. And to me, escorting is related to midwifery, but some people need a midwife and some people more need an escort. And so it's signaling that the chaplains can play different roles, right? They can come alongside and simply escort. They can help with the act of dying as in the, as, as, and like the act of birthing, that there's flexibility, there's improvisation there in, in the work, in the role. What are your final thoughts? I would say it's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, You know, I'm really eager to see how chaplains can continue to do their work, not only in the traditional or the legacy places, the places people would expect, but in new places. And, you know, we know that there's good evidence for embedding chaplains in primary care practices. We heard in the survey from Gallup that people are interested and open to spiritual support when they're going through other life transitions, like around divorce. So I think if we think about where the need is, where the opportunity is, it's not always where the people are, and there aren't dollars, but the more we can work together to try to bring the dollars to support people where they are in need, the better I think we're doing for ourselves and for the world. And so I just would encourage people to think creatively, um, continue to be in touch with us in the lab and use the resources of the lab and know that I'm grateful for the work you all do every day. Wendy, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Wendy Kudge. She's the author of Spiritual Care, the Everyday Work of Chaplains. She's also the founder of the Chaplains Innovation Lab. Thank you for listening. This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.